0: If you're listening to this, there's a good chance that you can remember a time when you lived your daily life without the internet.
1: Or email or Facebook or Twitter or magical internet cars that arrive on demand.
0: Or podcasts. Kids born in the last 15 years, though, have never known a single day without it.
1: And some of these kids are aware of the cybersecurity and privacy risks, and they're doing something about it. I traveled across the country to interview 15 kids under 15 years old who are rising stars of cybersecurity. Many of them are still wearing braces and toting school backpacks, but they're also hunting software bugs, protecting school networks, and even trying to safeguard electric grids.
0: We have one of those young stars of cybersecurity, Paul Vann, and his father with us today on the Cybersecurity Podcast, where we go beyond the headlines to interview key leaders and thinkers in the field, including of the field of tomorrow. I'm Peter Singer, strategist and senior fellow at New America.
1: And I'm Sarah Sorcher, deputy editor of Passcode, the Christian Science Monitor's section on security and privacy in the digital age. Paul is 14. He's a Virginia high school student, an almost Eagle Scout, and the CEO of his recently launched cybersecurity company called Vantech Cyber. His father, also Paul Van, who is a technical director of international programs at Raytheon Foreground Security. First, we'd like to thank HackerOne, the world's number one bug bounty and vulnerability disclosure platform, for sponsoring this episode.
0: You'll hear from their chief technology officer, Alex Rice, after we chat with the Vans. So first, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Tell us what you're working on these days. You've got this company. You're running uh, while also wrestling with high school. Mm-hmm. Tell us about this.
2: Right now, it, with my company, I am um, just trying to find work. We have two penetration testers who are ready to work, and we just need to find some work for them to do. I'm also a member of my high school varsity tennis team. Uh, a member of Boy Scouts and almost a Life Scout. And uh, I also play baseball outside of school, and I'm in a number of clubs.
0: So talk to us about the setup of your company and the lab that you've built.
2: So over the last two years, I built two, three years, I built a lab and I have many tools, hacker tools, uh, physics tools, and a number of many tools. I have a can antenna, which is a range antenna, which can go about three miles and can see different, can see Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, things like that. I have a Wi-Fi pineapple, which can perform man in the middle attacks against Wi-Fi servers, I have a mechanical wave driver, which is a piece of physics equipment, which is able to vibrate a string to create a sine wave. And I have a number of other tools, which I've used to build a lab that I use to do all my research.
1: And I've been to that lab. It's pretty cool. It's uh, in uh, Virginia, where you live, and you sleep in your lab as well, right? And so, I mean, do you feel like you're ever very far from your work? No, I do not. <laughs> and so how did you first get interested in cybersecurity? Uh, my
2: father, who is in the cybersecurity industry, he would bring me to ShmooCon, which is a cybersecurity conference in Washington, D.C., two years in a row. And after listening to some of the talks there and learning about the environment of cybersecurity, I really got interested in it. And after one of the conferences, my dad got me the book, uh, Ghost in the Wires. It really was a game changer for me. It made me think about what the whole cybersecurity field and what I wanted to do.
1: Is there one first hack that you can remember where it really clicked for you that this is something that you wanted to spend your time doing?
2: Yes. Uh, when I was around 10, 11, I asked my neighbor if I was able to try and hack hack into his Wi-Fi and find his password and log in and just see if I could break in. And I was successful and I was able to do that using a palm pad. And so
1: what is it, what is it like for you... Paul Van Sr., <laughs> when you have your son come to you and ask if he can hack a your neighbor's Wi-Fi and how do you support his interests at such a young age?
3: Well, the first thing I have to do is make sure it's not one that uh, we've already worked on. Yeah, All, all joking, of course. <laughs> it's uh, interesting to me and enlightening to me to have a son that's as interested in this as I am, and it helps me to find an interest in learning new tools and techniques from an ethical standpoint only. So, Paul what was...
0: The first big project that you tackled in cybersecurity
2: in 2015, I built a honeypot that looked like an a fake NSA login portal, and I just wanted. Now, why
0: did why did you do that?
2: Uh, I thought an NSA login portal would attract more attackers, malicious attackers, and would attract more people who'd want to attack it than just a simple, just a web, just a simple website or just a simple Windows computer or Windows server, something like that. What I wanted to find was like how many people would attack an NSA login portal or what they thought to be an NSA login portal. And what I found was really interesting. Which was? Uh, I found that a lot of people from a, a wide variety of countries wanted to attack the NSA login portal. And that's really what I found. I, I just kind of looking for metrics for that one. But if I were to do another, I would definitely want to see more who would attack, how mo- how many more people would attack an NSA login portal rather than just a regular server or- mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Do you think that those attackers from other countries, like you told me earlier, China was a big, you know, source of these hacks, knew that it was, you know, a twelve or so year old sitting in Virginia setting up this portal? I don't think that they thought it was someone of my age,
2: but I do think they thought it eventually maybe that it was a honeypot, but I don't think that some of my they thought
1: that someone my age would have built it. And so you were also tracking threats to the grid and critical infrastructure. Why is this something that interests you? Because everyone in America, almost everyone in
2: America has a use for the energy sector and businesses. Individuals they all use the energy sector and a th- and with threat if there were to be a threat to the energy sector and something were to happen Then many other industries would be affected and it wouldn't just be the energy sector
1: industry affected by it So tell us a little bit about the black energy malware project that you had
2: so over the last year and a half I I researched the black energy malware Which is a malware that has been used by Russian hackers to attack the ukraine energy sector and shut it down multiple times And basically, I found aliases, IP addresses, different phrases associated, and I found many other valuable information that was useful in my research that really helped me identify who was attacking and why.
0: So what do you do with that information?
2: Well, first of all, I shared it at Raytheon Foreground Security Conference. And second of all, I I want to release it eventually. And once I'm able to find more information to help people like me do more research on it with the data I've found and make it easier for researchers to find more information on the Black Energy Malware.
0: Now, it's both work for you, but it's also clearly a passion. What do you enjoy most about it?
2: I enjoy being able to find this information that they probably don't want found and I just enjoy doing all this research and finding information that really hasn't been found before or hasn't been connected. It's kind of like a treasure hunt. You're going and you're finding something that hasn't been found before and you're releasing it where people are able to see it and do more with it.
0: Mm-hmm. What's the least enjoyable?
2: When I hit like a roadblock and I can't research any farther, when like you've done all this research and then it ends and because you can't really research any farther, all the re- there's no more leads that you can go and follow. What's it like
1: watching him work on these projects as a parent?
3: You start off wanting to jump in and take over. And then you learn quickly that they may already have more information than you do. And as a parent, you sit back and learn from them sometimes. So instead of seeing through their eyes, I sit back and say, show me what you found. And then if I can provide guidance or another tool that might help him that I'm aware of that he can get for free online, that'll just help him get past the roadblock he's at that would be beneficial to them. You
0: look at it from the perspective of both a parent, but also as a pro in this field. What are the challenges that you see from that second perspective? And also kind of on top of, I'm fascinated by, are you seeing reactions from other people in your field? How do other professionals in the cybersecurity field react to them?
3: Sure, so going back to your first question, As a professional, I try to let him make mistakes first, even though if, if I know he's going down the wrong path, so he gets an understanding of the direction he went, rather than say, don't do that. I explain to a lot of people that are in my field that when they talk to him, regardless of his age, if they close their eyes, they'll think they're talking to a peer many times and a lot of them have seen that at various conferences. Like you said, he spoke at the Raytheon foreground security conference, which was plenty of my peers there, and they've experienced the exact same things I've told them, that he can be a kid, but when it's down to something like this, it's business, right?
1: And so how do you feel? Do you think that it's harder to get taken seriously as a kid than in this field? Yes, I do.
2: I feel like as a kid you're not as recognized because professionals think, oh, he may not have as much information as we do on this, so he may his research or his work may not be as good or as well done as our work could do, be or might not be as accurate or credible. Because he's a kid and hasn't gone through schooling or hasn't gone through college and things like that. So I do think, yes, that it's harder to be taken seriously as a kid rather than being an adult who's a professional in the field.
1: Does that intimidate you? And how do you fight this perception?
2: It depends on the time, but sometimes it can intimidate me. But how I overcome it is basically, I think as long as I can prove that what I'm doing is credible, then I can be taken seriously in most situations, as long as I can prove what I'm doing is credible and can prove that I know what I'm doing.
0: Would you have an example you'd use to illustrate that?
2: When I was like around 12, I had an idea, a physics idea, and it was for an invisibility cloak I was working on using the acousto-optic theory. And I emailed many professors, and I never got a response from most of them because I the first words I used were, Hi, I'm Paul Van, and I'm a ninth grade student in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And I think that really made them think, uh, I'm not going to waste my time sending an email back to them.
1: Did you ever find that someone did take that pitch, and how did you phrase it to them?
2: I phrased it the same way, but someone from the University of Mary Washington, the head of the physics department, did, and I went and spoke to him, and him and I, we worked out some tools I could use to help further my research. That's great.
0: There's a lot of difficult questions in this space when it comes to the ethics of it, when it comes to the right and wrong. How did you learn about these ethical issues, and how do you navigate them?
2: Well, I first learned about the ethics issues by reading Ghost in the Wires by Kevin Mitnick, where he talked about all the things he did that were wrong and unethical. And by learning that and also by breaking into my neighbor's Wi-Fi, it made me realize that I should not be attacking these things. I should be protecting these things because these are things that people spend their money on. These are the things that businesses, they pay for, they they put a lot of their profit into. So I think those should be protected and someone shouldn't be attacking those for personal gain or just for fun.
1: Is there any way that you enforce ethics guidance or whether it's actually enforcing it or just offering kind of the suggestions for what's right and wrong in this space?
3: Enforcement's tough because he works on his own in his lab. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I've never had an issue with Paul not coming to me and saying, can I do this to our neighbor's wireless? Mm -hmm. Can I do this? Can I do that? And being able to explain to him why he could or could not.
1: And so is trust a big part of this to have your both, I guess, from your perspective as um, as a kid, you know, earning the trust of your parents or your neighbors or other people, but also as a parent.
3: Yes, establishing trust is critical. And if you have someone like him that usually does no wrong, he's established that with me, and he knows he can come to either me or his mom on any of these issues, and eventually gets directed back at me.
0: <laughs> so Paul Jr., where do you see this taking you next? Maybe a different way of putting it is, where do you see yourself in a year and then in say ten years?
2: Oh well, in a year I wanna um, I'm definitely gonna start looking into new colleges and things like that and what I wanna get an actual degree in, but also what college I wanna to go to and things like that. But in ten years, depending on how my company Vantech Cyber goes, I want to start making a profit and then I wanna build a product eventually that will be able to be used by home users and business users.
1: What do you see as the biggest threat that the country is facing in cybersecurity? What's the most pressing issue?
2: As I said before, I would say that is the threats to the energy sector because the energy sector applies to all industries because all businesses, all people almost in the United States use the energy sector or have some need for the energy sector. And that's why it's important to protect the energy sector because it relates to everything. Without it, many industries would not be able to function correctly.
1: And your generation, though, is is much more connected than mine was or Peter's was or your dad's was. I mean, what is that like to know that you're living in an age where you guys are always have been and always will be, you know, wholly dependent on the internet. And do you feel like kids have a responsibility to tackle some of these problems because of that?
2: Yeah, I I do because we use the internet and we use all this technology so much. If we want to keep that and we want to be able to continue to use this technology without losing our data or having data stolen, then we need to step up and we need to protect all the technology and everything we use. Because if we don't, no one will. If we don't in our generation, doesn't protect it, then those things will be attacked and we won't be able to use those correctly.
0: Paul Sr., I want to ask you a two-part question. What advice would you give to parents in general who have a child who has an interest, has a passion in um, starting early in a field, uh, running his own business, and then in particular maybe advice to parents that might have kids interested in hacking or cybersecurity issues?
3: Sure. Uh, I mean, the first thing most important is don't ignore it. Um, I think we went down that path up front when he was much younger and said, we don't know where this is coming from type deal, right? So not ignoring it. Once you have come to realization that you do have a child that is overly smart, Use free resources. Use the internet. Um, If we're talking cyber specifically, there are so many tools out there that parents can use. Every parent, I hope, knows how to do Google searching. So search for free resources. Look for books on cybersecurity. I mean, there's a new one coming out every day. Try and find ones with very good ratings. Look into conferences. In 2017, I think there's 160 cyber conferences around the country. It's somewhere where you live. Look for one. A lot of them will let the children in for free. Let them go sit through sessions.
1: And how do you see the internet changing the way that would-be hackers can learn? I mean, was it different in when you were first starting to learn about cybersecurity, just the resources versus someone today who can log on to YouTube and find a how-to? Right. For,
3: for me, it's, it was modems and bulletin boards, right? Hacking phone lines, doing the things that kids today are reading that Kevin Mitnick did, right? We're at an age now where everything is connected to the internet. If you go get a new refrigerator today, it's connected. It's telling you what food you need. If you are a medical patient that needs insulin, there's a device that uses cell towers to do that. All of these things are hackable now. So it's very different in the fact that it's not just computers today. Mm -hmm. So they need to really pay attention to every single thing that is being used on the internet.
1: And it's also democratized learning to a degree as well. I mean how has that changed over time that the, the resources you know you can read about it in a book but you can also go on the computer and search how to hack Wi-Fi what tools. There's
3: <laughs> Yeah there's pretty much nothing that you can't search for on how to use tools that are a part of like let's say Kali Linux or various other operating systems that have been developed for ethical and non-ethical hacking. If a kid wants to learn it today, they're going to.
1: Is that the experience you've had? Yeah, I, I
2: was able to use videos on YouTube to learn how to use some of the tools in Kali Linux, and I was able to use tools such as YouTube to learn how to use um, the Wi-Fi pineapple, for example, and tools such as that.
0: Are your teachers and maybe you know friends, parents, as similarly supportive as your parents? Do do they get what you're doing or do they see it, you know, falling within that kind of, oh, he's hacking, he must be up to bad?
2: They don't understand exactly what it is, but they do understand that what I'm doing is ethical. So it's kind of like an- How, how did
0: you message that? I mean, uh, because that would be contrary to my expectation, right?
2: Through um, Sarah Sorter's article <laughs> on 15 Under 15. All right. Many of the teachers saw what I was doing was ethical and not unethical Okay, work. but the, before, before you that. had the yeah.
0: experience of, of Sarah riding on you, what, <laughs> right. what, was, the, what was it like before? Before then? the
2: media spotlight, yeah. I guess. I personally don't. No, but I would assume then yes, some people did probably think that because of the tools such as the honeypot I was building and things like that and learning how to use Linux
0: tools. Paul Sr., did his teachers or family friends ever talk to you or did you ever talk to them about what he's doing? How did you message it with them?
3: Uh, The only conversation really we ever had, nothing with the teachers other than, hey, he's really smart, the things he's working on is beyond some of us specifically in math. But conversations I had was with my neighbor, hey, Paul wants to try this. You live across the street. He wants to set up some tools and see if he can get your password. We'll let you know when he does, and then you need to change it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) With tools today, it just, it doesn't take very long.
1: Is there a stereotype of kid hackers that you wish wasn't around? I mean, do do you think that people automatically would assume, you know, something about you?
2: Well, I think that one of them that I don't like is that they just assume that they don't know what they're doing and that they're not as developed or um, as smart in that field as an adult would be or an adult professional would be. And that's just one thing, that they're just not as good as those professionals in the field.
1: Do you have anything to add to that on stereotypes? Do you ever see that typecast of a hacker kid imposed on him?
3: Um, I don't see that on him. And I've been in the field long enough that I've had 19-year-olds working for me and... 70-year-olds working for me. So I don't look at it like that. I I typically want to ask somebody that's looking for a job, what are you running in your basement at home? Tell me the operating systems that you use, things of that nature, because you don't know who knows cyber today. If it was 20 years ago, it would be a different story. But today, it can be the 5-year-old kid hacking Xbox One, or it can be the 70-year-old that has been doing this his or her entire life, and you just never knew it. We have one question that
0: we've asked of all our guests, uh, everything from uh, the head of Cyber Command to congressmen to CEOs, and you fall in that category as well. And it's this, what is your favorite depiction of cybersecurity in fiction? And favorite can be either you love it or it can be one of those you love to hate. But So when you think of the fiction in this space, what do you love?
2: well I don't have many I haven't really watched many movies where there's been cybersecurity but one I do like is The Matrix and Neo and The Matrix and um, I like it because like through his research research that isn't related to The Matrix he finds The Matrix but it's all malicious and he uses his cybersecurity and hacking ability to help people who are stuck in The Matrix
0: so you took the red pill
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> alright well thank you again for joining
1: us Next up is a sponsored interview. Sean Spazito of the Christian Science Monitor will chat with HackerOne's chief technology officer, Alex Rice.
4: HackerOne is the world's number one bug bounty and vulnerability disclosure platform, connecting organizations with the largest community of creative white hat hackers, resolving in excess of 40,000 vulnerabilities and awarding more than 14 million in bug bounties. Over 700 organizations, including the U.S. Department of Defense, Uber, and Starbucks, trust HackerOne to find critical software vulnerabilities before criminals can exploit them.
5: Hi, I'm Sean Spazito, the Assistant Director for Content Strategy at the Christian Science Monitor. And with me, I have Alex Rice, the co-founder and CTO of HackerOne. Alex, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate you.
4: Yeah, great to join you again.
5: Um so so recently one password google and microsoft have kind of raised their bug bounty amounts the amounts that they pay to security researchers that report defensively to them so that they can you know kind of better their products like
4: make them more safe um like what what does what does that say like why are they raising these amounts we're so used to this endless stream of just sad depressing security stories about everything's (laughs) getting hacked and and we're all screwed, that this is a very positive story that for certain parts of the technology that we depend upon, it is getting more and more secure. We are actually making meaningful forward progress and getting to the point where there are very, very competitive rewards offered for people who want to help defend and protect technology.
5: So, 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 So this is about rarity of the bugs that are
4: being found? Absolutely. This is a direct sign that vulnerabilities in these applications of this severity are getting increasingly hard to be discovered. They're, they're harder to exploit, they're harder to identify, and they don't live as long when they do.
5: Yeah. Well, so it's something I'm like really interested in is sort of like the unintended side effects of like when you when you have a bug bounty amount that that's high, does that de-incentivize like folks that actually work on your security team uh, to, to kind of come out and and, and kind of work for you? I mean, it's, it might make more sense for them just to report
4: bugs. For these top tier companies, the, the inverse is far more risky than that. If they've are if they actually run out of vulnerabilities and there's no more being discovered by um, the offensive markets or the defensive markets or by their own internal testing, um, they lose their sense of purpose. The, the security engineers that are the top of their field that go to work at Google and Microsoft um, they do so because they want a challenge. They want active adversaries. And um, it is meaningful to them that they are defending against these challenges, but it is also an important part of their overall, overall ability to be effective that there is a continuous stream of new attack techniques coming in for them to, to sit around a whiteboard and figure out how to defend against. Yeah,
5: yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, that like kind of raises an interesting question because, you know, how do companies come to kind of decisions about how they price bugs, right? I mean, you guys have hundreds of programs, like HackerOne literally has hundreds of programs that that you guys kind of like oversee, and then you must help price. Um, like, what's the specific ROI equation that, that you know companies have? What's the math that companies have to go through in order to come to some of these like upper
4: bounds? It, it's a bit more art than science, and but it takes a few factors into it. The first one is, and more so than anything else is the scarcity of these vulnerabilities you do not see high aggressive competitive bounty amounts unless those vulnerabilities are quite rare and that that's a good thing so if you get paid hundred thousand dollars you're basically breaking the internet. you're not doing that on a daily basis exactly right? that does not happen every day yeah. and so that tells us a lot about the maturity of the application the second one is the severity of it not every vulnerability is created equal but not every vulnerability in every company is created equal right like a breach of um, Google's customer data has far more severe implications than the breach of customer data at a, a local regional bank. And vulnerabilities get priced relative to the actual risk to the business in, based on just what can you do with that. And, and the risk the entire internet. In many cases, that, yeah. that in many cases, particularly for these hundred thousand dollar bounties, that becomes true too. Then the final point is just how competitive and ambitious are these are the security teams here? Do they actually want to know about these vulnerabilities? And you'd be surprised that for most companies out there, there's not a real, genuine appetite for I want to find out about all the vulnerabilities. Most people still have their heads buried in the sand, and they're like, you know, I, I actually don't want to know about all the vulnerabilities. And you that's the, the final leap that folks have to overcome to really get high rewards you have to really want to know about your vulnerabilities
3: Mm -hmm.
5: well i mean so it's impossible to talk about the defensive marketplace without talking about offensive marketplaces like the the black market right i mean do do these higher bug bounty amounts i mean are they in any way a response to some of the incentives that offensive marketplaces black
4: marketplaces kind of create the black market gets way more credit than it deserves in this in this overall ecosystem Um, it's the reality is it's going to adapt to whatever incentives or disincentives the defensive folks put into play. This is really about defensive security teams optimizing for what is most important to them and how they think they can best find out about vulnerabilities. They don't offer $100,000 prizes in order to buy every single vulnerability out there, but they're trying to incentivize enough smart people to contribute to it so that the Defensive teams can take those learnings and go kill entire categories of vulnerabilities. This isn't really about competing on a one-for-one basis with the black market, which is the biggest uh, degree of asymmetry that exists there, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the, the spy agencies of the world, they only need one vulnerability in order to be able to achieve their objectives. And even then, they're not going to use it all the time, right? Right. They're just going to fish. That's right. But they just need that one. Whereas the defensive market, they just need one in order to effectively mitigate entire classes of attacks, and that that means that it's never going to be a one to one comparison on a on a on a bounty basis. It's absolutely a second order effect. So, so I I, I uh, it's a little bit off topic, but but I really have this
5: one last question about Vault Seven, right, and the offensive marketplace. I mean, did those specific WikiLeaks disclosures did that tell you anything about the incentives that are kind of being built into the black market?
4: Yeah, the the most revealing thing to me in that entire program was the diversity, both of vulnerabilities and attack techniques and styles that um, the the buyers of the black market will go through in order to achieve their objectives. And there were very few hundred thousand yeah. dollar attack techniques yeah, 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 yeah. in the in the playbook. And keeping that in mind as defenders, that really. The number of ways we can potentially be compromised or have security breaches is, is, is quite vast. And we have to have a more holistic view of just how are we going to get compromised. And it's not just the tip of the spear, $100,000 uh, uh, bounties that we see getting paid. There is a much large, larger spectrum, and it starts well below
5: $100,000. Exactly. So, so these big payouts are just as fair, uh, just as rare defensively as they are offensively. Pretty much, yeah. Well, Alex, thank you so much. I really
4: appreciate your time, man. Great as always.
1: Thanks again to the Van family for a great conversation, and again to Hacker One for sponsoring this episode. On a more personal note, at the end of March, Passcode will be winding down as the Christian Science Monitor changes course to focus its attention on a new daily digital subscription product. It's been an incredible adventure, and I'll also be leaving the publication. I've loved being your podcast co-host, and I do hope that you'll keep in touch. You can follow me at Sarah Sorcher.
0: And I'd like to add my thanks to Sarah for being an incredible co-host and Uh to Passcode in general for being amazing partners. We're still working on what will happen next at New America. So until then, I'm on Twitter, at Peter W. Singer. And be sure to subscribe to us on New America's iTunes and SoundCloud. This podcast was directed by John Williams with production assistance from Simone McPhail.
1: Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America and the Christian Science Monitor. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Music thanks to MK2 for their songs, The Big Score, and Cold Killer. To learn more about Passcode by the Christian Science Monitor, please visit passcode.csmonitor.com. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.